The headlines tonight. Mexican soldiers and police go loco on drugs. Four boar pigs are stabbed in South Africa. And Caliph calls for delivery of chaos. Plus, coming up, the latest on the sheep napping epidemic sweeping Lancashire. Those are the headlines. Now let me finish. News bang. Brushing away the cobwebs of misinformation with the broom of logic. Eldum. 2006. Breaking news from the year 2006. As President Felipe Calderón sends in the troops to Michoacán, Mexico, to wage war on drugs. With a name like that, the state was always asking for it. Operation Michoacán, or Operation Pina Colada as it's known in English, is the government's latest attempt to tackle the spiralling narcotics problem, mainly by setting fire to it. As helicopter gunships strafe the poppy fields, one bystander Juan Loco Sanchez said, We ain't seen nothing yet, man. This is like El Apocalypso, no. The offensive comes after years of cartels running the show, peddling everything from marijuana to those white pills that make you think you're on top of the pops. But with the army now in control, it's only a matter of time before the streets are safe for law-abiding citizens to resume their meth habits. In other news, the Queen has recorded a special message urging us to... Keep calm and carry on, man. It's only an apocalypse. In 1899, the Boers, who were, let's be honest, just Dutchmen on holiday, thrashed the British in the Battle of Magafontaine. The Brits were trying to save Kimberley, which was under siege by the Boers, probably because they'd eaten all the hobnobs. But the plucky defenders of Kimberley, led by Major Clive Sinclair Smythe and his trusty sidekick Basil, fought them off with stiff upper lips and rolled up copies of the Times. The Boers, led by General Peculiar van der Twerp, were said to be quite cross at their defeat, vowing to return as soon as we've had a nice cup of rooibos. The British, meanwhile, limped back to their barracks, promising to return with more PG tips and biscuits next time. Baghdad 861 AD, the Abbasid Caliph, Al-Mutawakil has been bumped off, leaving behind a power vacuum and four puppet caliphs. Witnesses describe the scene as a right royal mess. The golden age of Islam was in full swing, and the Abbasid Empire was at its peak until this dastardly deed. The caliph, known for his religious piety and territorial conquests, was last seen alive at a banquet eating a sherbet. It was later found to be laced with cyanide and a note that read, Death to the Infidel. Q pandemonium. Samara, the empire's capital, descended into anarchy. Four puppets, puppeteered by power-hungry viziers, took the throne in quick succession. The first, Al-Mutaz, lasted a week before being strangled by his own puppet strings. His successor, Al-Mutaz, lasted a whole month before choking on a cashew nut. The third, Al-Mutad, was accidentally beheaded during a game of Pin the Tail on the Infidel. News bang, a pinch of fact in a mountain of misinformation. Let's now turn our attention to the magical winter weather that awaits us today. Shakanaka Giles is here to guide us through this delightful journey, so stay tuned.
The weather today is akin to the first sip of a warm Christmas pudding, rich, hearty, and rather delightful. In Christmas Town, the frosty flurries of snow are falling lightly, as if the heavens are decorating the world with glittering crystals. This snowfall is expected to be as light and fluffy as the marshmallow in hot chocolate. Over in New Year's Eve City, the night sky is filled with twinkling stars and the promise of a brilliant fireworks display. The temperature will be as warm as mulled wine, perfect for bundling up in cozy sweaters and enjoying the night's festivities. As for Candy Cane Forest, the day is forecasted to be as sweet as a candy cane itself, with temperatures remaining just cool enough to keep the candy from melting. Be sure to carry your favorite candy cane as you stroll through the forest. In conclusion, snowflakes as delicate as marshmallows, a night sky full of stars, and a candy cane sweet day, and that's all the weather. Eldum. 2006. The year 2006 saw the beginning of the Mexican drug war, initiated by President Felipe Calderón's order for military intervention in Michoacán to combat drug-related violence. Operation Michoacán aimed to disband cartels and hinder drug trafficking. This joint venture by federal police and military focused on addressing issues within the state of Michoacán, specifically Morelia as its capital city. Now we'll pass it over to reporter Brian Bastable for more details on this ongoing conflict. This is the tinderbox of tension, where cartels and death squads stalk the night like feral shadows from some apocalyptic tale. Here the marijuana plants grow tall and the cocaine flows like rivers. This is a place of horrors where gang warfare, gun battles and mass executions become the daily bread of these brave people. Tonight, there are rumours that the tipping point has been reached and that the army is poised to move in. All around, the people of Michoacán tell tales of lives stolen, of bodies left to rot, of dreams bludgeoned into submission. But here in the heart of darkness, hope still burns like a flickering flame, the embodiment of their unbreakable spirit. In this desolate land, the tide of battle ebbs and flows like a shapeless storm, and yet these people refuse to let their lives be washed away. This is our world, our reality. This is the heart of the Mexican drug war. This is the land where the war is waged on many fronts, from the streets to the skies, in a bloody dance of death that no one can escape. Here there is no law but the gun, no justice but the bullet. This is the story of an entire country gripped by fear as cartels, corrupt cops and politicians make a killing at any cost. Tonight, we stand with the brave men and women of Michoacán as they stare into the face of darkness and vow to never surrender. Brian Bastable, Newsbang. In 2005. In 2005, a year marked by outrage and turmoil, the world witnessed a series of events that would forever change the landscape of international relations. One striking instance occurred in Cronulla, when demonstrations against violence engulfed the town and eventually transformed into race riots. 
Amidst this chaos, horrifying acts were committed, leaving an indelible scar on the global consciousness. Now joining us to provide more insight on this pivotal moment in history is our trusted correspondent, Ken Shit. Good evening, degenerates. As we rewind the clock to the tumultuous year of 2005, let's not forget the chaos that unfolded in the streets of Cronulla, Australia. It was a time when violence and hatred reached fever pitch, as white supremacists clashed with Lebanese Australians in a frenzy of mindless rage. The demonstrations against violence were supposed to bring people together, but instead they turned into a bloody free-for-all that left dozens injured and several arrests made. The atmosphere was thick with tension, as both sides hurled insults and hurled objects at each other like monkeys flinging feces. It was a sickening display of human nature at its worst, as these so-called patriots reveled in their own ignorance and bigotry. They attacked innocent people just because of their skin colour, proving once again that some humans are incapable of seeing beyond their own narrow-minded beliefs. This is Ken Shit reminding you that no matter how much progress we think we've made as a society, there will always be those who seek to divide us and spread hate. Let's never forget the lessons learned from Cronulla in 2005, and let's strive to create a world where everyone is treated with respect and dignity, regardless of their race or background. Uh, 1789. In the year 1789, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill was chartered, making it one of the oldest public universities in the U.S., alongside others like the University of Georgia and College of William and Mary. The flagship institution of their respective university systems commenced enrolling students in 1795. Meanwhile, on their campus stands the iconic Old Well, a symbol of its history. However, Debates on which institution is considered as the oldest public university in the nation continue to this day, and we bring you more news updates as they develop. But now, back to our special coverage with CBN's Melody Wintergreen. Unfathomable wonders beyond our wildest dreams are butchered in the annals of the past by the hands of the illustrious few. Witness if your heart and mind can endure the monumental unveiling of history in unmitigated, tangible form. It is the year 2023, a time when the present is a mere specter of the glorious past, and we stand on the precipice of a moment in history that we had dared to forget. As if a phoenix of academia, the specter of our bygone scholarly forebears rises from the ashes of antiquity, reborn, reinvigorated. It is the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the first white-clad giant amongst the ivory towers of higher learning. A cherubic confluence of intellect and tradition, a sanctum of knowledge where students are initiated into the sacrament of wisdom, bathed in the neoclassical glow of the old well. Amidst the verdant embrace of nature, the grand old university stands a beacon of enlightenment. Few can boast of such lineage and pedigree, a line that traces its roots back to 1789, an epoch when the dawn of a new era in education had just broken. Here, the seeds of learning have been sown, sprouted, and flourished, nourishing the minds of generations. It is not the oldest university, as the tale often goes, but the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill 
is the oldest public university in the land, a testament to the unwavering spirit of this nation. It is in this hallowed ground that the pursuit of knowledge transcends the boundaries of time and space, a sacred pilgrimage for the seekers of truth. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and it is unfolding right before our very eyes. Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang, under the resplendent gaze of the old well. The Newsbang, bringing the news back to the old school of truth. Now, focusing on the future of Arsenal's footballing prowess and the continued growth of this iconic club. Tune in to understand how these young players will carry the legacy of their predecessors. Continuing the journey beyond their humble beginnings, join us as we delve into the world of Arsenal football. All this and more, only on this very station where we make it our mission to share relevant news that matter. It's December 11th, 1886, the year that proved to be a true turning point for the world of football. From humble beginnings on the Isle of Dogs, a team by the name of Arsenal, known as Dial Square at the time, played their first match. Now fast forward to the present day, and this fine football club has come a long, long way. With their impressive trophy collection that would make most other clubs green with envy, Arsenal has firmly cemented themselves as one of the most successful in all of England. But let's take a step back in time to that fateful day in 1886 where the Arsenal lads took to the field with all the enthusiasm of a dog chasing a bone. Now I wouldn't call their match play perfect by any means. Sure, they had their fair share of hiccups and bumpy bits, but that's all part of the charm, isn't it? The beauty of football lies in the imperfections, the scrappy bits and the unpredictable nature of the game. And speaking of dogs, the Isle of Dogs was certainly a lively place back then. Fierce, canine companions roamed the streets barking at the slightest provocation and there were more than a few hairy encounters with stray dogs on the pitch that day, if you catch my drift. But the Arsenal boys rose above it all, forging ahead with grit and determination, proving that they weren't just any old team from the Isle of Dogs, but a force to be reckoned with. So here's to Arsenal. May their football legacy never be forgotten and their love of dogs never wane. And don't forget to keep yourselves well informed with the latest Gunners news by tuning into this very station, where we never shy away from the good stuff. Until next time, cheerio. Nineteen seventy-two. Before we delve into the world of space exploration, let's take a moment to remember the ground we've covered thus far. Astronauts, lunar landscapes, and even some British ingenuity. It's now time for Calamity Prenderville to keep the celestial adventure rolling on. Well, strap in your seatbelts, space enthusiasts, because we're rewinding the clock back to 1972, a time when flares were wide and ambitions even wider. Today marks an extraordinary historical event. One small step for man but a giant leap for televised entertainment. Apollo 17, the blockbuster finale of NASA's lunar reality show, saw its dramatic conclusion as humans frolicked on the moon for the very last time under the Apollo banner. Leading man Harrison Schmidt was not your average astronaut. Oh no, he was a geologist by trade. That's right, a rock star in the most literal sense. 
He sashayed across the lunar surface, picking up stones like they were going out of fashion. It was like an interstellar episode of Antiques Roadshow. And let me tell you, those moon rocks could fetch a pretty penny at auction. The moon itself, Earth's loyal sidekick and tide orchestrator supreme. Imagine if it demanded royalties every time it pulled on our oceans. The British seaside economy would be all at sea. But let's talk British innovation. Now, while our American cousins were busy with their Saturn V rockets, very impressive indeed, we here in Britain contributed significantly behind the scenes. Our top-secret lunar crumpet technology provided critical nutritional sustenance, yes, that's right, the crumpet as fuel for human endeavor. Who knew? This monumental mission marked the end of an era when humanity reached outwards to touch another world. And though the Brits may not have been at the wheel, or rather the joystick, we were certainly there in spirit, and in crumpets. So, as we remember Apollo 17 today, let's dream of a future where we can all enjoy a cuppa on the moon's sea of tranquility. Just imagine it. One small sip for man, one giant slurp for mankind. And that's your cosmic slice of nostalgia for today. News Bang. The news as a nourishing meal, not an empty calorie distraction. The story of Bernie Madoff, who in the year of 2008 faced charges for a fraudulent scheme involving billions of dollars. Madoff's firm had businesses in both stockbroking and asset management, with the scheme centered around asset management. Securities fraud is a misleading practice that can fool investors by providing false information. Ponzi schemes, named for their originator, rely on new funds to continue as long as people keep investing and don't seek full repayment or lose trust in non-existent assets. All this under the watchful eye of our reporter Perkins Stornoway. The stock market's mixed this morning. Dogger, slight or moderate. Today in 2008, Bernie Madoff, an American stockbroker, was arrested and charged with securities fraud in a zero-euro, 64-cents billion Ponzi scheme, the largest in history. Madoff's firm had a stock brokerage and an asset management business, with the Ponzi scheme centred in the asset management business. Securities fraud is a deceptive practice that induces investors to make decisions based on false information. A Ponzi scheme misleads investors by using funds from new investors to pay profits to earlier investors. The scheme can continue as long as new funds are contributed and investors don't demand full repayment or lose faith in the non-existent assets. Forties, veering east, three or four. Shannon, south, veering southwest, five or six. Lundy, fair. Cromarty, east or northeast, three or four. This is a terrible report, Viking, slight or moderate, but let's just hope this ship isn't sailing into any rough weather. Thames, light icy patches. Hebrides, occasionally rough. Today's currency report. Rockall, west, backing southwest, four or five. Fast net, occasionally poor. So, on the currency markets, Hebrides, southwest, becoming cyclonic, five or six. US dollar, down 0.62. Shoreline, fair, occasionally moderate. The pound managed to escape the waters, north, veering northwest. Force 3 or 4, 
but it should be noted that the exchange rate is much better if you stick with euros. Sol becoming variable. Forties veering southeast, increasing three or four. For an up-to-date summary, Rockall occasionally rough. Good evening, slightly bumpy in the south. Finally, the Hebrides west backing southwest, holding for the rest of the day. Remember, the pound's been quite robust in the markets these past few years. Business. Nineteen sin, oh seven. The original Parliament House in Wellington, New Zealand, burnt to ashes in 1907. The current building finished construction between 1914 and 1922. It's now one of the city's top tourist destinations. Due to the earthquakes, it underwent refurbishment between 1991 and 1995. Wellington is also known for its gusty weather conditions. Reporting from Wellington, Smithsonian Moss has more on New Zealand's history and parliamentary affairs. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Smithsonian Moss and I've been snatched straight from a unicorn dreamland to deliver to you news you never knew existed. Tonight, we're taking our jazzy hot tub of culture back in time, all the way to 1907, the year the Parliament House in the Land of Kiwis was hit by fire. You know, those friendly birds with adorbs orange beaks and legs that could give Usain Bolt a run for his buck. So here's a little-known, funky, fresh history. In 1914, the first hip-hoppy Parliament House in Wellington was built. It took eight years for the architects to put the finishing touches on this badass structure, completing it by the 91-95 era. It's not just any old political headquarters. No, sir. This building, my friends, is the spot to hang in Wellington. The city that's as windy as a hippie's dreads. Our little jaunt to 1907, though, isn't all sunshine and roses. It's the place where our original Parliament House kicked the bucket and burst into flames. You know what they say. You ain't the architect if your buildings can't catch on fire. No worries, New Zealand. They built a new and even stronger one that could withstand the tremors from the big OE down under. Now, Wellington, the capital of New Zealand, ain't just famous for its wind that'll slice through your best trackies like a ninja. It's also famous for hosting the coolest Parliament House in town. This ain't no mere political center, but a tourist attraction, a place you'll find the finest Kiwi selfie opportunities. In other words, Wellington, the capital, is just like your favorite vintage shop, full of surprises. And here's a thought. Maybe our founding fathers can learn something from the Kiwis about building earthquake-proof structures and handling some serious wind. Oh, wind. Ain't that something else? It's Smithsonian Moss with a touch of the hippie spirit, so keep it funky, peeps. We'll take a moment to appreciate the windy wonders of Wellington, the Parliament House, and the spirit of New Zealand. So until next time, Newsbang, keep it funky fresh. Newsbang. Finger on the pulse of truth, fork in the eye of fiction. 1925. In a significant move marking the shifting of Catholic doctrine, Pope Pius XVI proclaimed the establishment of the Feast of Christ the King. This commemorative event underlines the principal leadership of Jesus Christ and has been observed every year since 1925. 
Celebrated on the last Sunday in the liturgical calendar, this festival serves as a testament to our faith and devotion. Now reporting on this event is our very own Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. Always a pleasure to be handed the reins of tonight's broadcast. I see some new faces in our studio audience. Welcome all. Now, our producer mentioned I'm to riff on an event from 1925 involving one Pope Pius I. Let's see, Pius and he was the stoic, bespectacled fellow, if I recall correctly, had a real zeal for establishing new feast days and liturgical celebrations. In fact, that brings to mind the tale of how we came to celebrate Badger Day in my childhood parish of St. Bartleby's. It all started when our priest, Father Todlesham, woke up one morning with a divine vision. The Holy Badger came to me in a dream, he declared. Well, he became positively obsessed with these mystical badgers after that. Went on and on in his sermons about how the stripy-faced creatures symbolized Christ's humility and earthly struggles. Finally, he petitioned the bishop to recognize these saintly beasts with their own feast day. The bishop... And we're back for one final roundup of tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Bush wins election, thanks to Supreme Court's halt on recount. The Guardian, Byzantine Empire strikes back, Sasanian forces sod off. The Mail, Stalingrad relief attempt grounded by winter storm. The Onion, World War II, Axis powers defeated by Allied forces, vow to form new supergroup. The Beano, Major Tom to ground control, Snoopy One is go for launch. And finally, The Daily Prophet, Harry Potter elected as Minister of Magic in post-Voldemort Britain. One but one but taste, That's all from Newsbang tonight. Remember, the past may be a foreign country, but at least they don't have Brexit. Good night and don't let the past dystopias bite. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.